Happy Monday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Die Hard Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, a bunch of different great uh, podcasters from all over the Movies by Minutes universe come and talk about probably the greatest uh, Christmas adventure movie of all time, the 1988 John McTiernan-directed uh, <laughs> movie, Die Hard. I am one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of the Airport Minute and the Rocketeer Minute. And I'm Hal Bryan of the Rocketeer Minute. And Jim, what are we doing here? I know. <laughs> we're, it's, we're back. We're we're, we're getting over the hiatus uh, cobwebs and, yes. uh, and getting back into this yes. movie. Now, I'm supposed to speak into the microphone. Is that right? I'm, I'm trying to recall <laughs> exactly how yes. this works. Yes, and, and hopefully we're, we're doing a, a double session with a brand new, uh, uh, or actually it's an old friend of, uh, of uh, Connections, uh, po- fellow podcasters know about Zencaster, and we're actually on Zencaster talking, uh, talking to each other. So uh, fingers crossed, and it's, if you're hearing this, it works. Yes. So the ship remained afloat. Yeah, so uh, we're we're uh, we're looking at we got a pretty good week here on on Die Hard. We've got a we we've just had uh, we've just had poor Bruce Willis to make the first the the worst nine one one call. Actually, it's not a nine one one call. He's apparently on an emergency frequency, right? Which uh, I don't. You know, I've always wondered that when it's kind of like you never hear them use the uh, uh, the civil defense sirens, except if you've got a tornado. But you never hear them for nuclear disasters and things like that as hopefully (laughs) and uh do are are there police now how you do have experience in the police are there police that monitor channel nine on the cb radio you know i i'm sure that in uh in larger departments and then absolutely uh groups like the highway patrol who are are focused uh, because we we think now of cbs mostly being uh being associated with truckers um, and surprisingly, they still have them. In fact, just it wasn't that long ago. I was in a, a weird little convenience store here in Oshkosh, and there was a whole CB radio section, which felt a little dated. But you can buy a CB radio with Bluetooth. So just let wow. that sink in for a minute. It's like you know, it'd be like an eight-track player with Bluetooth or something. But anyway, I would be sure that the uh, that larger agencies and things like that would monitor it. We didn't. Uh, when I was uh, in law enforcement in a little town in Washington, I worked both. Uh, street side and uniform and the communication side and we didn't uh, we didn't have any facilities for that we had our own uh, our own primary dispatch frequency we had two tactical frequencies which is more sort of informal chatting car to car kind of stuff that's where people would just yeah. make fun of each other most of the time uh, and then we had uh, fire frequencies a utility frequency and then we had in uh, Washington state we had what was called learn uh, law enforcement regional network and uh, that was one. If we had a big enough incident where multiple departments would involve were involved, then we would take command and switch everybody over to learn. And that way, everybody it's it's one frequency we know everybody has. You end up changing your call signs and all that stuff. What what amuses me here at the beginning of this is you know Bruce Willis is yelling on the radio, and then we're, I guess we're supposed to assume, but but movies never really pay much attention to this. We're supposed to assume that he's still holding the mic down. And transmitting while he's running and the gunfire is happening because those dispatchers are, you know, reacting to it. So uh, it's so loud in their their uh, little earbuds. Yeah, it's. I, I didn't know that they didn't have a you know a squelch or a maximum volume and things right. like that. It's usually. Uh, I, and the the thing that always I know this is a movie, <laughs> but I always wonder whenever they show like uh, you know this is the eighties and it's modern police techniques. What are those gigantic lighted computer boxes in the background? <laughs> it just is that you know. Uh, <laughs> it's so, it's telling I mean, the health you know, status of every police officer in in Los Angeles. And exactly. This guy's okay. Who oh, this guy's wounded? This, you know, so it, you know, 
right about this, uh, in fact, when this movie came out, so I started my training with the police department in December of 88. So this movie just, this was, uh, this movie was sort of the midwife of my law enforcement career. It was right there at the beginning. And in our communication center, you wouldn't have seen, uh, you know, what we used to call just those BS lights that look cool back there, but you would have seen a couple of big cabinets about that size with reel-to-reel tape recorders that were running constantly. They would record uh, all the phone traffic, all the radio traffic, anything that happened in, in, inside our uh, inside our comm center. Um, when we started uh, there, not that everybody needs to know this history, but uh, we had a single comm center for, just for our police department. And then a few years into my stint, uh, we consolidated everything. And uh, so the city and the county and and uh, uh, utilities and fire and everything was all out of uh, all out of one building. But anyway, in the background, you would have seen big reel-to-reel tape recorders, and those were such a pain to change, because even in, in 88, 89, they, they felt so dated. Oh, yeah. They must have been like uh, like the old computer tapes, you know, the half-inch tapes just hanging stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and rolling real slow. Uh, uh, but it, yeah, it's, it's quite a... I, I mean, I, I'm, uh, I'm impressed by, uh, <laughs> by how reluctant the police officers are to send somebody out there. And right. Just, this, this, is the, this is the most uh, dubious uh, 911 center I've ever seen. <laughs> like, exactly. Ah, we, if we absolutely have to and somebody's shooting, we're actually hearing gunfire right. in the mic. Yeah, maybe there's somebody. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting, too, because at larger, in, in larger agencies, uh, you know, back in my day, it was all, uh, we were all, all in one. But in larger agencies, uh, a lot of times the 911 operator and the radio dispatcher are two completely separate jobs, usually in separate separate rooms, sometimes even separate buildings. Um, in this case, though, where the call is coming in over the radio, it makes sense that these would be the actual uh, radio dispatchers uh, versus the, uh, uh, in fact, just one second here, LAPD has specific names for them. Uh an emergency board operator would answer the 911 call, and then the radio telephone operator would actually be the one talking on the air. Oh, but in this okay. case, I would presume these are both radio telephone operators. Um, yeah, yeah. Another uh, thing that I'm, was a, a little bit, a tiny bit different, too, is for us, we had uh, primarily, and we could we could change this around, but it always worked better for us working in the comm center, we had uh, really light Plantronics headphones uh, just for the phone. And then radio traffic came in over uh, over a speaker that everybody in the room could hear, and then oh. you know we could isolate and do things if we had to. But uh, but that seemed to work really well because you could still hear the radio traffic just fine even with these lightweight headphones on. Wow! So so um, there's that. Huh? I, yeah, I'm, I, this this is more than I've ever thought about nine one one. But it's it's, <laughs> it's I can keep going. <laughs> oh no, it's great! It's great! It's great! I do uh, I do like you know it, it's funny I just. Uh, I just, I mean, I guess, I guess after a while you get tired of all the all the nonsense calls, but just the, right. the dispatch, the the dispatch supervisor in this just seems to be so annoyed. Of course, she is working Christmas Eve, so right? It's like I, yeah. you know, she's she's in just as bad a situation as all those poor people that are at you know, that were at the uh, Nakatomi Christmas party on Christmas Eve. Except uh, she has no cocaine, presumably. Yeah, and, that's true. Yeah, you know, yeah, and she's no, got her clothes no on too. Bar. So yes, she, you know, she does. She's got her yeah. uniform on. Yeah, uh, and uh, and that uh, that is something about that job. It's easy, to, you know, those kinds of jobs. It's easy to forget is there's, you know, there's really no such thing as uh, as a holiday, and uh, you know, working these night shifts, these overnight shifts. I used to do that a lot, and uh, um, 
worse than working a holiday though was uh um when the time would change oh so, yeah yeah so in uh in the fall if you were working a, a graveyard shift so for us that started at it went from 10 a.m to 6 or 10 p.m to 6 a.m and when you get to two in the morning and you've been counting the minutes and you've been yeah, saying and yourself, it's two o'clock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You get to two in the morning yeah, and I, you've got this in your head, you know, great. What is that? Only uh, 240 minutes until I can go home. And then you've got to ratchet it back to one and you got to add yeah. 60 more minutes to it. That is, that's the worst. And then it always worked uh, I, out yeah. for me that in the spring I would be on day shift. So I'd lose the hour of sleep when I have to start at <laughs> six in the morning and then work the extra hour. So... Uh. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I, I worked uh, graveyard at uh, Texas Instruments, the the, the uh, chip company, the calculator people at the time when I was working at it, and it was it was always nice having that springtime. Even though you only got paid for seven hours, you got to go home at seven. You know what what to your body felt like seven thirty, oh, even right. though it was eight thirty in the morning. <laughs> um, well, we're gonna we're gonna leave the nine one one center here, and we get back to uh, uh, Carl shooting wildly. At uh, what is obviously not Bruce Willis, right? It's some some twenty five year old you know kid with uh, a lot more hair, carefully shaved to look like Bruce, um, and very uh, very nimble. Yes, <laughs> very very <laughs> agile. And uh, yeah. Carl is carrying a uh, a Steyr AUG, and it's a uh, uh, it's a very odd looking uh, odd looking weapon. Another uh, it's uh, built in Austria. Um, came out in the late 70s i think and it's uh lots of different calibers um one of the things i had learned uh, digging into this a little bit is uh the that style where the trigger is sort of very far forward and most of the action is behind the trigger that actually has a name that's called a bullpup style so i've heard of bullpup hmm. rifles but i never actually knew what it meant i did actually get to fire one of these once and uh it's uh it it's as weird as it looks it's it feels very strange having you know, the trigger that far forward and then what feels like a very short barrel, but it's it's very controllable and everything. And it feels very, very high tech and plasticky and everything else. And I, I would have sworn that hmm. this probably came, you know, would have been brand new in the 90s when I fired it. I was very surprised to learn that it's been around since the 70s. And then you've got, uh, of course, Bruce is carrying his stolen. It's supposed to be an MP5. Uh, also by Heckler or by Heckler and Koch, but it's actually, uh, what did I look this up? It's an HK 94 a three. It was basically the civilian version of the MP five. That's been dolled up to look like the fully automatic version, which I thought was kind of interesting. They didn't have access yeah, to the real yeah. thing. And actually the, uh, I used to work for H and K. Oh really? Um, how uh, am I just learning MP, about this? Yeah. Now? The MP five, it, I, I don't know. It was, it was one of the many British aerospace companies, and I had to build some intranet stuff wow. for H&K. One of, their, one of their most amazing things is they used to have a conference room in northern Virginia, and, and their office, by the way, was completely unmarked. You just kind of <laughs> went up to this building, and the only way you'd know that something was up was they had uh, razor wire around the parking lot. And uh, no wow. no names anywhere on the doors because it was obviously a great target for people wanting to pick up their fine line of products. Um, but uh, their their conference room, the in insides of their conference room, had every piece of armament that H and K made, including um, uh, one of those tripod mounted uh, uh, grenade launchers. Oh, good they lord! Didn't actually have the they didn't actually have the ammo for it, but they had this thing sitting in the corner of. Uh, uh, of of the conference room and while you were sitting there all these all these fellows were a lot of the fellows that were working there one of them used to be the chief armorer of the marine corps 
and uh, they'd they'd be idly having a chat, and they'd be pulling these uh, these different firearms off the wall, disassembling them, uh, <laughs> inspecting them, and putting them. You know, and while they were having a chat with you, this was their bit of business that they would do. So there was and, the the world's most dangerous fidget spinners at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and one of their one of their greatest thing was in the basement of of the uh, of the building. They had a a large uh, sewer pipe. They had a big uh, a concrete sewer pipe, and they had not only their equipment, but they also had uh, Uzi and um, uh, Sig Sauer, all these other different uh, companies. Um, I, I'm not I'm not that big on understanding. Yeah, I, I don't know all the names of all the ones different ones, but they, right. what they had is all the competitors' weapons, and you could go down there as an employee and check out a particular uh, firearm and test fire it in their little uh, in their little uh, concrete uh, sewer pipe. Wow! <laughs> uh, so I got to uh, I got to fire an Uzi. I got to fire an MP5. Um, I've forgotten one else, but just. Wow. Uh, quite an amazing feeling. Uh, uh, just d- d- you know, you have it on the three shot, and you'd hit it, and you go, d-d-d-d-d. and <laughs> it was quite a quite an experience. But the MP5 actually kind of feels like a fake. Uh, I don't know if you've ever carried one. It kind of feels have, fake. Yeah. It's a little. It's a little bit light. Yeah. And one one of the things that uh, that I was surprised at how movies affect uh, real products is. The uh, if you ever saw the movie Aliens, there's M- there's highly modified MP5s in that movie, and they right. have a they have like a, a a round counter on the side, little LEDs, and there were actually some armies, uh, other nations. I don't remember which ones, but uh, they actually requested that to be installed <laughs> on their equipment that you could tell how many rounds you had left, which I would think would be something that you'd know if you knew how to operate it. You'd you'd probably know how many you fired. Right, you'd it keep was, track to some degree. Yeah, so uh, oh, that's funny. They they actually had these the, when I was working there. They had just put these things out that had uh, round counters on the on the side <laughs> of the uh, on the side of the gun. So oh, that's amazing. Uh, um, <clears throat> so yeah, I got to fire an MP5 once myself. And the one thing that I noticed with it, you mentioned it, you, you hit it right on the head. It's really really light, and uh, you know, so for me shooting it, and it's nine millimeters. So it's not a lot of power behind it. At least the one that I fired was. And uh, so it would just climb like mad. Like I would, uh, yeah. you know, on shooting full auto, yeah, it, it feels like it's going to just float right up out of your hands. And it was at, around that same time that I got to shoot the uh, the Thompson as featured uh, so prominently in that, oh, yeah. in that other movie we talked about. Yeah, and that one. Uh, that one just feels, you know, it feels like it weighs 20 times what the MP5 does. And that one just stays, you know, sort of right where, uh, right where you point it. But that, uh, but Anyway, my uh, my boss that I work for now at EAA, uh, retired detective, and he carried an MP5 as part of their SWAT team, and and uh, was always very very comfortable with it. But I think it's just a you know it's a matter of comfort and oh. taste. I, I had I had held an M1, and that to me, after, and this was immediately after holding an MP5, and to me oh, that felt yeah. like I was trying to hold, I was trying to aim an Underwood typewriter. You know, exactly. Like, <laughs> yes. Like, oh my god. It's like it's a. It, you know, you could maybe make two of them out of a telephone pole with that big wood stock and yeah. everything and stuff. It's yeah, yeah. So it's like it's like we want a war with this thing. Right. It's amazing. <laughs> the, uh, so, uh, and if you think about, you know, like in the Pacific, so in particular, in World War II, you've got most of your infantry uh, guys are carrying M1s, but then the big guy in the group is carrying a BAR, a Browning Automatic Rifle. Yeah. And uh, I shot one of those once. I did a three-round burst while standing. And I just, I leaned into it with everything I had. I'm holding it as tight as I can. And by round three, I'm, I'm only standing on my rear foot and I'm teetering. And it's, it's a 
open question whether I'm going to fall on my back or not. They were um, wow. They were just re- absolutely ridiculous. I have no idea how people managed to do that, but there's your greatest generation for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, we watch uh, Bruce Willis's stuntman slide <laughs> slides quickly, rapidly toward uh, uh, Olympic Boulevard, <laughs> far below, 44 floors below. And uh, we're seeing him uh, just kind of teetering over the uh, the Ralph's uh, uh, parking lot there, which uh, Ralph's, as anybody who's been in uh, Southern California, this is a very familiar site. Uh, Ralph's is a large supermarket chain begun in uh 1873 by a guy named Ralph's. I like Ralph's plural. I thought his name was Ralph, oh. and then they. Yeah, but that's apparently it was his name was Ralph's. That was my uh, thing I learned in in researching uh, this particular one. Uh, so, is there no apostrophe in the name? No, it's Ralph's is the name. It's of it. just Ralph's, Ralph's plural. Ralph's like Nestle's. Um, it's just one of those. One of those well, that's bizarre. That, that changes everything. I know. I, I, I my world was rocked looking this up and. Uh, <laughs> The uh, that that Ralph's on Olympic Boulevard is still there. It's been pretty much torn down and rebuilt. The uh, the Ralph's has a two story uh, parking lot. We're seeing the top level there, and just underneath it is a, another complete uh, parking garage, which is pretty good for them because there's 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 no parking on uh, on Olympic Boulevard, and uh, it is kind of like the neighborhood. The this is we're kind of sitting at the edge of Beverly Hills there, um, but a very nice uh, very nice Ralph from what I've seen pictures of it on the internet. Um, Olympic Boulevard, of course, is uh, the great back road in uh, uh, across Los Angeles County. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, Olympic Boulevard is what you get on when the Santa Monica Boulevard is like completely tied up, and you get to hit the surface streets and, and slide around. That's that's the way I know Olympic Boulevard, and uh, it's it heads right past the uh, the Fox Tower that we're Nakatomi Plaza here that we're at. Um, but Ralph's is now owned. Ralph's, I think, was bought in 1980 by the Kroger Company, so it's one of uh, one of uh, the Kroger Company's many fine labels. Um, so, uh, as you're looking down and you see that Ralph's on Olympic and everything else, is it your your impression that uh, that we're really on location here, shooting from the the roof in the right place? Yeah, from what I'm understanding, this is kind of like uh, they kind of did it the way they did Harold Lloyd in a Safety Last. They built a platform on top of the roof of uh, of the Fox Tower, and okay. they're they're sliding through careful angles. He's actually sliding toward the uh, toward the roof, uh, which is you know they've, they've got a, they've got a lot of space between him and the edge of the uh, the edge of it. But just at this particular angle, um, it, it makes it look like you're you're right on the edge of the building. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure this is a real thing and not just a, a rear projection. Right. Uh, and uh, it's you know, pretty effective. Um, then, oh, good. I was just going to say. So then, of course, uh, from there, if, if we're if we're done with the, the roof for just a moment, we go to the AMPM, the uh, the convenience store, which um, I remember those primarily from the West Coast. I know they spread a little bit further east here and there, but then I think they've they've kind of subsided again but uh did you have uh, do you have ampm in texas uh no no we have okay. uh at the time there we had a u totem which was a giant totem pole okay uh, kind of a thing and uh also the circle k which i think is also popular on the west side right west coast there's there's circle k's um but yeah the ampm i remember this is actually and this particular ampm is uh, no longer with us it's now a dry cleaner store really but it's it's actually directly it's it's also on olympic it's just um Let's see. This would be just just be south of uh, of the Ralphs. The Ralphs is right across the street from it. Oh, so he he's he really is that close, which is uh, yeah. That's, that's well done. That's a nice nod on their part. You mentioned Circle K um, in 
and it's it's funny, you know, a, a cop working nights in particular, um, you very quickly become best friends with uh, whoever works in the convenience store. Um, so we had a Circle K in the little town where I was working, and uh, um, I got to be such good friends with Circle K Joe that we uh, we almost became roommates. And that's uh, wow. So, and he's uh, Circle K Joe is still out there. Um, I would totally watch that sitcom. I know exactly. He's a cop. He's a convenience store. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Adventures of Hal and Circle K Joe. Yeah. Um, ABC's Night Shift. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I will never forget the time when Circle K Joe called nine one one, and uh, and said he needed uh, all of the officers to respond uh, immediately to Circle K, which was about I don't even know if it was a block from the police station. It was it was very very close. And the reason for the emergency was that he'd just gotten in uh, uh, this new thing uh, that looked like a corn dog, but was actually a sausage on a stick wrapped in a pancake and came with maple syrup to dip it in. This is like at three in the morning, and this was the most exciting thing happening in that little town uh, that night. And sure enough, you know, everybody shows up there. <laughs> we all met up. Everybody had to try one. Have our midnight <laughs> breakfast, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't Twinkies, but still, you know, poor poor uh, Reginald L. Johnson, Al Pal here, loading up <laughs> loading up his arms with midnight snacks, ostensibly for his wife. That that feels a little familiar. Wow, it's yeah, it's 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 an eternal and anybody who works third shift knows what's open and what's closed. So you, right. you start doing it as point to point as well. When I take my four o'clock lunch, I'm going to be going to this yes. place and. And um, your standards uh, plummet. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. what you will, you know, what you will eat at three or four in the morning for lunch. Yeah, versus as, what as you long would as eat the when... Best Buy date is still okay, exactly, <laughs> or close. Yeah, it's uh, it, it a. This was a very well stocked. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this is. Uh, I'm assuming this is the set. I don't think this is. Uh, I don't think they they filmed it on site, but it's possible. But I, I'm pretty sure they. This is a. This is a set, yeah. I would think. It sure looks good, uh, though. We, and as you said, it's very, very well yeah. stocked. And, uh, you know, so many great, uh, uh, just lots of great little details. I mean, there's nothing about it that sort of looks out of place. Um, toward the end of the uh, transaction, you know, he's giving him a little bit of a hard time. But, uh, the uh, you know, he, just, he drops his change in the little dare, uh, little dare donation jar, yeah. which... I'm not sure if that program is still around. It was actually just starting when I was uh, I was in law enforcement, and that was drug abuse resistance education. So this nationwide program, and every department around had some kind of a dare vehicle. We had a uh, it was a, I think it was a Chevy Lumina, a big black van with that logo on it, and then we had one officer who um, was assigned to that. It wasn't necessarily full time. But he would drive that vehicle on patrol periodically back and, you know, he would switch back and forth and he would still respond to normal calls. But but he was also the one any time that that van needed to be somewhere at a school event or something like that. That was uh, that was his job. Yeah, we had a uh, when I lived in the town of uh, Winchester, Virginia, we had a, a dare officer who every every kid in school knew. And uh, he was actually the first uh, uh, fatality in the uh, Winchester Police Department. He was chasing a, a, a a drug dealer and and he was shot and it was it was quite a quite a blow to the to the whole community because he was so well known by so many people um it really yeah. affected the affected the city of winchester uh, uh deeply and a very young fellow three kids and just you know a, tra- a tragedy so when i think of dare i i, I think yeah, i think of the fella but uh yeah i don't i don't know if it's still going on i know there's uh 
my uh, my daughter said that a lot of uh, a lot of her friends her age wear the shirt ironically because they're usually just a bit um, under the influence uh, a lot. And she said usually the uh, the kids that are they're not kids anymore; they're in their twenties. But he, she said usually the uh, uh, people trying to wear this ironically are like it it, it almost tags them as as being. Uh, you know, a bit, wow. bit of drug heads. I was assuming um, they were just wearing it ironically yeah, so. because it's it's uh, it's very eighties. But uh, as I know the program started in the yeah. early eighties uh, down in L.A. and I think it is actually still uh, yeah. uh, still going on. It doesn't seem like you hear as much about it as you used to. But I, I've, I've tried to find uh, just just it, all other signs that are in this uh, that are in this store that that PayPoint cashier, oh, yeah. um, which. Uh, I've tried to find it. Paypoint, apparently that name has been purchased in 1997 by a British company who does, uh, uh, they're, they're similar to uh, uh, PayPal. They're kind of, you can handle, you, you can handle sales and, and, and things and, and do uh, uh, merchant services and stuff like that uh, in, in the UK. I don't know if they're a US based thing anymore or what, you know. Or if they're if they are like some new iteration of that old company, but uh, PayPoint's kind of a mystery on. on oh, interesting. Internet. You know, speaking of um, signs, uh, you've got the big uh, uh, sort of mural up near the roof with all the different snack foods and the Fritos and and everything else. And I think the uh, the can up there is, um, I think that was New Coke, because uh, at the yeah. at the time, if it was just Coke, it was New Coke, and if it was Coca Cola Classic. Uh, which I think it'd come out by 88 because New Coke was 85. So it didn't take them that long to bring back that original formula. And uh, and, and an, an interesting blend of sponsors, too, because uh, if you notice that there's the Coke right. products and then there's also Fritos, which Frito-Lay is a oh, Pepsi-Cola sure. company. So, so yeah, uh, it's more... They, uh, they, ran the, they ran the gamut in that it's very yes, ecumenical. very much so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we see another uh, another uh, product placement of Tic Tacs yep, as uh, as Al's walking out the door there, which uh, he, we will have a mention of. Uh, uh, Al will be uh, discussing that with another police officer <laughs> in a and few minutes. Uh, uh, um, a big icy, uh, sort of mocked up icy cup back there, and then he, also as you see him walking out, there's the there's the milkshakes for ninety nine cents. Oh yeah. And it's uh, it's one thing, you know, back when we did the Rocketeer Minute, it was always fun to say, well, when this cost this much, you know, what did that cost way back then in the in the 30s? But it's it's different when it's in your lifetime somehow. Uh, you know, I was, you know, an adult and starting a career when this uh, this movie came out. And even then, 99 cents back then is uh, is just over two dollars today, about two dollars and six cents. So that's so that's changed. And but but it. it based on some quick reading I did, an average milkshake in a convenience store will now cost $3. So it was a bargain. Have, uh, it, it was a bargain. And 99 cents was a, was a good deal. I, I want to talk a little bit about the icy. I, I, <laughs> Absolutely. I, used to be, I used to be a fan of icy, but now I, I don't think I could drink, drink it anymore. But uh, icy was invented in uh, 1958 uh, by a fellow who owned a Dairy Queen up in uh, Coffeeville, Kansas. His name was uh, Omar Needlick. And uh, he, what happened was his uh, his soda machine broke down. His regular soda machine that he had at the, uh, at the at the Dairy Queen broke down. So he bought uh, uh, a lot of uh, pop bottles, and so he put them in the in the freezer uh, 
and then uh, to keep them cold. And what ha- would happen is people would buy these uh, these bottles, and when they'd open it up, the uh, the release of the pressure would freeze the <laughs> would freeze the fluid and turn it into slush. And people started asking, "Let me have one of those icy uh, icy sodas that you have." And um, so he he started selling them. At, at, you know, he he started tr- making what he would do is he'd pour soda into his uh, into his custard machines and make make frozen slush of of the soda. And uh, some of the best this, snack foods happen by accident, I suppose. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> it's like, can I eat this? Yeah, it'll be all right. It's, <laughs> there's just something. It's uh, they probably should have never hired you for their marketing department because yes. this, you know, it's just do you want some cold slush? And it just doesn't sound good. Like even slushy sounds fine, but just. Here's some slush, and I just picture the stuff that's in the gutter in the winter. Yeah, the, yeah. The, but it's, uh, but it's but what what happened with icy was that uh, you, you know the, the icy name is still out there, but uh, one of their major sales they invented a, uh, this uh, the Needlick fellow got together with a with a guy from Dallas and, and built a machine that would just make slushy these slushy kind of uh, uh, drinks, and Seven uh, Eleven got interested and bought. The, their equipment from from them changed the name from Icy to Slurpee, and now they're the largest producer of Icy-like products. Um, so oh, really? Just, so Icy became Slurpee. As I remember, I, Slurpee is from Seven Eleven. I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, Icy. Yeah, Icy, and Icy is still around. They kept the name. Ah, okay. So there's, you can uh, you can have you, you can basically get a, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a, uh, a franchise. Yeah, it's, it's basically an Icy franchise. Except Seven Eleven has their own icy flan- franchise called Slurpee, and they they do their own thing. But basically, Slurpee is a is a branded Seven Eleven uh, icy. That's really interesting. So uh, I'm just just looking them up right now. They have seventy five thousand icy machines across America, serving three hundred million ices per year. Wow, amazing! I, I, um, more than I've ever wondered about. Now and now I know. I, but, I, uh, I wouldn't even well, have guessed. I couldn't even have. <laughs> I couldn't even uh, have thrown a, a dart at a wall and, and guessed a, a number like that. That's amazing. You know, I oh. keep thinking we should have had for a, for a guest on today's show, we should have had uh, our, our old friend, uh, uh, our uh, OBGYN guy, uh, John DeLemba, who could have, we could have talked about, <laughs> we, we could have talked about cravings and, uh, and Twinkies <laughs> That's and things true. like yeah, that. That's true, yeah, because Al's wife ostensibly is pregnant. I don't think we ever meet her. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure we don't in uh, in this film. I don't know that I don't recall meet, that we meet her in Die Hard Two or not. I think we see a do we see a picture in this movie later? I we think of, of his kids. Maybe we do. We're gonna have to, yeah. We're gonna uh, have to look have around to, on this, but have uh, to watch carefully. But he's got to get to he's got to get to work. I guess he's waiting for the next shift. He or maybe he was drive he was driving home to uh, to drop these off. Oh, that's wife. true. But he gets uh, interrupted by he gets interrupted by that uh, that. A nine one one operator that we were watching right. earlier. Yeah, the, the, the dispatcher gives him and, a call, uh, and uh, yeah, at uh, a Lincoln thirty, yes. I think is we find out. So Al's that's uh, that's kind of interesting because that's that's actually right on. So uh, an LAPD call sign like that is uh, it's number letter number, um, and of course Lincoln is just the phonetic alphabet for L. But in this case, um, the first number is the uh, what they call is it the district. Um, let me just double check that it's or just the district or the station. So eight is West Los Angeles. I guess it used to be Sawtell Police Station, but okay. West Los Angeles, which so covers there. Century City, where where this has all happened. Lincoln is code for a uh, sort of a one officer car, 
and you know in the early days uh, they would you know, like it starting in the even in the 60s they would refer they would have like one radio car per shift now of course every car has you know radios and cell phones and and built-in laptops and tablets and things but uh in this case um Lincoln would be a a uh, one officer radio car so it's so his call sign would be 8L30 and the 30 is just uh would be his sort of sequential unit number so there's at least 30 people you know that are uh, in the uh oh, okay. uh 30 people in either 31 man units or 30 or more uh you know total units uh working west LA at the time um it's interesting how the you know the call comes out. So it's like they get the you know this call sign is very plausible. Um, in uh, in my law enforcement world, we just had uh, we had badge numbers, and we didn't we weren't we didn't have a jurisdiction that was big enough to have different beats or anything, except in very rare, very rare exceptions. So uh, our dispatch would just call you know by an individual number, and then nearby agencies uh, would have similar sequential numbers like for us the police department were all the 100 series my my was 166 and then a nearby town of uh would be the 200 series and so on things like that and then the county sheriffs would be less than 100 um so there was the, the sheriff himself was just one that okay. was uh so you heard him on the radio and everybody everybody pretends to pay attention um <laughs> but uh the the dispatcher gives him this call and uh, and says investigate a code two at uh, Nakatomi Center, Century City, and that's that's a little bit weird because um, and we didn't use the the radio codes with the, with we had one or two exceptions for things that we wanted to be discreet about over the air, but uh, uh, for the LAPD those codes like code three, code two, et cetera, those are indications of how you should respond. So code two means go straight there, but no lights and siren. So you're in a hurry, but this isn't, you know, you're not in a huge hurry. Because we obviously don't, you know, apparently we've only heard some automatic gunfire. So it's no big deal, I guess. Um, you know, realistically, I would yeah. think that hearing, you know, oh, I, I can't even say realistically. Of course, in real life, if there was any awareness of actual shots fired, this would be code three and this would be an all-unit situation. But dispatcher doesn't know what she's heard. She just heard this guy, this lunatic uh, yelling and uh, sends him over to it. So, um I actually spent a bunch of time uh, this morning listening online to LAPD dispatch, and it was interesting to see that they still use that number letter number thing. Those units are still uh, still involved, and uh, but they will always give the address twice, and they will give you uh, the dispatchers will give the officers responding, you know, a, a, usually a plain language description of what's happening, like suspicious circumstances or you know, possible shots fired, something like that. And then the the code response would happen at the end of the call. So it'd be like head over to Nakatomi Center, whatever that address is on in Century City. I think you probably probably know it. Say the address twice, then the very last thing she'd say would be code two to give him a a, a sense for how urgent is this. And I guess he they said he said uh, Nakatomi Center Nakatomi Center that would be such a big building they wouldn't need to give an address right isn't that you yeah know, that's not that 128 Olympic Boulevard yeah, or something. yeah it just it's it's like you know where this thing is it's like go to Disneyland right, or go exactly <laughs> although of course uh you know if 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 I'd been working and gotten a call like that I'd be back on the radio immediately asking for more information um because you know a building that's literally as big as a city block 
you know, well, which is, is which yeah. side is it the north side? Floor is, is there it something? Or, yeah. Is there a floor? Yeah. Is it uh, you know, you know? Please, what else can uh, can you tell me? Um, the other thing that I found interesting is uh, they've got the radio calls ending with the word "over," uh, which may have been in use uh, in the late '80s, but I suspect even then it was kind of anachronistic. We don't really, uh, both in law enforcement and in you know aviation, don't really say. Nobody's really said over anymore for forever, but what uh, what I did hear in listening to uh, uh, the LAPD and and the, the West LA LAPD uh, dispatch stuff for about an hour this morning is uh, everybody says uh, Roger, so somebody gets a call and some and the, the officers will respond Roger, and that's radio slang for mm-hmm. basically I heard you and I understand. It's just a way to just acknowledge uh, acknowledge the transmission. It's generally more of an aviation thing, or sort of more traditionally associated with aviation. And we'll still say it once in a great while, but for the most part, that's kind of fallen out of favor. But you'll still hear it all over the place on uh, with the LAPD. Yeah, I mean, gen- generally, uh, at least in aviation, don't you just repeat back what you heard? Isn't it, that how? Uh... In, in many cases, as appropriate, yeah. Or you just respond uh, respond with your call sign. The uh, one one of the the other thing that I usually usually hear with police dispatchers is that they'll um, they'll just say the time I, as a as a that's response. exactly what I was just about to bring up. But uh, um, and and certainly uh, in you know back in in my career that's exactly how we did it. The dispatchers ended every trans you know if there's a back and forth when that exchange is complete. Then you say the time, and that's because because of those real real tapes we were talking about rolling in the corners that you you always have timestamps periodically so you can find something if you need to go back and listen to the audio. Um, LAPD is not doing that today. I, I would have thought they probably would have still have been doing it in the 80s. Um, and I even uh, found my old dispatch center online, was able to listen to that for a little bit. And I wasn't hearing them uh, do it, although it was it was very, very quiet out there in a small town at six in the six o'clock on a Saturday morning. So there's only a couple of a uh, couple of radio exchanges to hear. Um, if we've gone away from that in this uh, in this world, I would I would assume it's just because everything is digital and is automatically time stamped, and that's just redundant to have somebody say the time. Yeah. Um, one thing before we get off the subject of dispatchers, and as we as we drag this episode out to uh, hour four or wherever we are at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I thought this was pretty interesting is uh, if you there was an old CBS uh, CBS radio show called Calling All Cars and I uh, used to hear that uh, and and that was kind of the tagline that, and the star of it was kind of this dispatcher I'm calling all cars calling all cars that kind of thing and what I didn't know until just recently is that the guy doing that voice uh, is a guy named Jesse uh, Rosenquist who was an actual LAPD dispatcher and uh, in the very, very early days of uh, of radio and law enforcement, and he actually already had a big fan following because he uh, because at the time they were using uh, when LAPD started using radios, they were using frequencies that uh, that came right into the normal AM band. So you could you could just tune your normal AM radio and you could listen to you know whatever Ozzy and Harriet and Fibber McGee or. LAPD and hear what was uh, hear what was going out there, um, and uh, so this guy, everybody knew this this guy's voice. It's Jesse Rosenquist. He had fans. He had followers, and so when it came time to do the radio drama, they they basically cast him as himself. 
Um, and I was I was always amazed when uh, when I would work the dispatch side of things um, because we always had to remember that that uh, you know even though we were on you know very different frequencies we had people with scanners all over the place and this is of course well before streaming on the internet um, but we had people with scanners all over who were listening and um, I would once in a while get a nine one one call and it was just somebody calling to say. You know, hey, I just want to say, you know, I always like it when you work. You always sound like you're having fun at work, whatever you're doing. Okay, well, thanks. Did you have an emergency? <laughs> no, no. All right. Well, you stay safe out there and maybe maybe don't call 911 to tell me this. But I appreciate it. So, but you always had to remember that, uh, you know, that what you say on the radio is not only recorded. Yeah, you, you, were, you were broadcasting, exactly. yes. It, so, and that that gets people into trouble once in a while, but there you have it. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing one thing I have to say before we leave the uh, before we leave the, the this wonderful uh, convenience center and and <laughs> drag the, like you said drag the show out a little further. Uh, the name of the proprietor backwards there on the uh, on the door as we're leaving is a fellow named uh, or I think it's a fellow named Yena uh, Komshian, and that name happens to be. Uh, a very famous uh, and popular cosmetic surgeon who was in, uh, I believe, in Beverly Hills and later really? moved to San Jose. So I was just wondering, I, I, I don't know if that was like a nod from uh, people, you know, people who worked, people who worked there who knew this uh, plastic surgeon that lived in Beverly Hills or if if actually. <laughs> so you're saying that a plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills might have some connection to to actors yeah, and actresses yeah. in Hollywood, who, Jim? Who, who would think such a thing? But uh, which, you know, and, and looking at the way that this uh, this shot, this shot out here might be done, this actually might be this, this. This gets me away from the idea that this is a set and that it's an actual uh, it's actually on site. Just looking at the, the background going there. I mean, he might be walking out to a cyclorama, but it might just be easy enough to. Uh, to just shoot it in an actual thing, and maybe, maybe the co- cosmetic surgeon had decided that he wanted to, you know, uh, diversify his assets and buy buy a, right. a night, a twenty four hour short yep. store. Are you able to see the uh, the first name or just the surname? No, I can't get the. I, I could just get the surname. I, Looks like the I, the first name maybe ends in N E. Yeah, which, or something. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, I mean, number one. It, it could be a a common surname in in uh, in another Arm, yeah, culture Armenian. or yeah. oh is it Armenian that that would make sense yeah. or it you know it could be uh, hey I'm a successful plastic surgeon uh, I'm going to buy my brother an AMPM yeah <laughs> that, that or be. as you said could be a nod it, it's uh, that's really interesting yeah so uh, who can we we'll call to... <laughs> what do uh, we know well uh, John McTiernan's out of jail now so we can maybe get a hold of him I don't uh, we, we need to talk a little actually I don't think anybody's really talked about the director much and we can uh, go into his uh, very uh, florid past uh, yes. following this movie um, he, uh, he he did he did make some of the greatest movies that I've, I've always enjoyed but uh, we'll, oh, we'll probably talk with him a little bit more tomorrow but uh, let's, let's let's leave that uh, for for tomorrow. For uh, for folks listening in, uh, we we are as you know, Hal and I have have done the uh, uh, the Rocketeer minute, and if you haven't listened to that, you're missing a really great show. I, I speak from personal and unbiased experience uh, that <laughs> the Rocketeer minute is one of the greatest uh, shows ever ever constructed. 
Uh, so in any format, us, in any media. In any format, any yes, you are. It's an entertainment yes. avalanche, right. and uh, we do have the Rocketeer himself on the show for many uh, episodes. Billy Campbell was kind enough to be on our show, but uh, you can check that out, RocketeerMinute.com. You can also uh, find us uh, on Twitter. We, we're out there, and we post. Uh, even though the show's over, we do post pictures of behind the scenes and different different knickknacks that that come our way uh, at uh, on Twitter at uh, Rocketeer Minute. Uh, if you'd like to hear other shows in this format, Minute Movies by Minutes, uh, a whole bunch of us are out at moviesbyminutes.com. You can check out, uh, I think there must be at least 100 now that are uh, different shows that you can watch out there. If you want to talk about this particular movie, Die Hard, we are also available on a bunch of social media. Find us at Twitter at Die Hard Minute. Find us online at dieHardMinute.com, the big site where you can catch up on previous episodes and, and catch up on future episodes. We're also available on iTunes and Google Play. Please uh, also find us on uh, Facebook at the uh, Die Hard with a Podcast Listeners Limo, where everybody gets together and chats about how wonderful or how awful the, the current show is. Please leave us nice, nice uh, responses. That would help. Um, so uh, join us here tomorrow when we find the, uh, the further adventures of, uh, of Sergeant Al out there on the job, uh, heading for Nakatomi Plaza here on the Die Hard Minute. So until next time, yippee ki well, you know the rest. <laughs> Toodles. <laughs> Tell me you got that. I got it, I got it. Hit your heart on Channel 5. <laughs>